0: we're continuing this morning with, uh, it's not a series, it's actually a second part to what we started last week when we talked about how to have God's power in your relationships. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, and it's the Sunday when we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the presence with us that uh, brings us of uh, the very presence of Jesus and the heavenly father into our lives every day. And his power is available to us. And Jesus promised this. And uh, in fact, he read uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit, the way that it comes out is that the Holy Spirit's power winds up being manifested as we act in faith. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And later on, Uh, in the 14th chapter of John, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. You know, I think it's John that says, if you say you love God and hate your neighbor, you're a liar because you can't, you can't do that. You can't love God and hate your neighbor or your brother, or your sister. Uh, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Well, through the hundreds of years, thousands of years since Jesus said these words, these words have been proven true. And the Holy Spirit still comes to hearts who open themselves up to him. We sang just a few minutes ago, uh, and he touched me. Something happened, and now I know. There is something that happens when we make that true commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can't have him as savior without taking him as Lord as well. That's another thing that uh, people just—they don't—they want, want to be saved, but they want to live their own lives, and it doesn't work that way. So, uh, His Holy Spirit's power is manifested in your life as you act on it. And the sad thing is, there are so many homes in our country, and around the world, where the people go to church, where uh, they name the name of Jesus, they call themselves Christian. But if you could hear those people talk to each other in their homes, if you could hear how they cut each other with their words, if you could hear how tough they were on each other, it would break your heart. And you know it grieves the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not stay where he's not welcome. And so it's so important. And all this begins in the place where (sighs) so little times we see it. People go out the door and they put on a face. And they can be righteous and things like that. But they come home. See, it's when you let your hair down that you show your true character. It's whenever uh, you're behind closed doors in your house that you show whose you really are. And so the Christian life begins not in church. It begins every morning in your house when you wake up. It begins there. It begins And you start having the opportunity to prove whose you are when you encounter the first person you come across that day, be it a spouse, a child, a neighbor, or whoever it might be. Because the Christian faith is a way of life, and it begins at home. Well, like I say, so many times... uh, We don't find that. And I've done lots of counseling with Christians who didn't know this. How they missed it, I don't know. But somehow, well, I do know, it's because they live out of what they have been taught, what they grew up in. We go on tapes that we learned as kids uh, until we let the Lord intervene in our lives and he wants to do interventions in your life every day because there are things that we all need to be set free from. And uh, it's a growing process. And so we may not know it today, but he may reveal something to us tomorrow, our growing edge. But I have discovered that in households, that is where the growing edge is found in most homes. <sighs> I can remember One church when I served early on, on Sunday morning, the first voices I would hear after I got to church and was in my study would be our organist and her mama, who sang in the choir, coming down the sidewalk, and they both had voices that carried very, very well. And my first sound of my church members' voices would be them cussing each other as they came into church. They come into church and all of a sudden, you know, they're pious, you know, but uh, while it was just them together, they're just near, 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 near at each other all the way to the door. And uh, it was just grievous. It was grievous because it begins with those that are closest to us. You know, I I use these wheels a lot whenever uh, I'm counseling with people and, you uh, uh, They are about relationships. One, on the outer perimeter, it has physical and sexual violence around the outside edge. On the second one, it has non-violence. And you know, there are ways to be violent besides hitting somebody. You can be emotionally violent. You can be uh Uh, just uh, so verbally violent to someone. And so on this wheel, on this one, and at the center of this wheel here that says violence on the outside, in the center, at the heart of those relationships is power and control. The big question in those households is who's going to be in charge here? And people are always trying to get their way. In those homes. It's very, very sad. And are on the outside edge, uh, uh, using around the wheel, using coercion and threats to get your way, using intimidation to get your way, using emotional abuse, putting the other person down, making them feel bad about themselves, calling them names, making them think they're crazy, playing mind games, humiliating them in public. Uh, making them feel guilty. Those are all forms of abuse. If you didn't know that, there may be somebody here that didn't know that, may be practicing those things. Those are forms of abuse. Using isolation, controlling what the other person does, who they see, who they talk to, what they read, where they go, limiting their outside involvement, and using jealousy to justify the actions. Minimizing, denying, and blaming making light of the abuse, and not taking the other person's concerns about it seriously, saying that the abuse did not happen, shifting responsibility. That's a big one. Shifting responsibility for abusive behavior, saying that the other person caused it, using children, uh, making them feel guilty about the children, using the children to relay messages, using visitation to uh, harass, uh, threatening to take the children away, uh, economic abuse, preventing them from having or keeping a job, making them ask for money. Uh, these are mostly women issues here. Giving her an allowance, taking her money, not letting her know or uh, have access to information about family income. These things are all around This wheel that has power and control in the middle. Most people, when they start reading this, they'll say, you know, that just makes me feel bad just reading it. And then they read the things around this that says nonviolence. At the center of this wheel is equality. Something very different. Uh, On the inside of the wheel, negotiation and fairness, seeking mutually satisfying resolutions to conflict, accepting change, being willing to compromise, non-threatening behavior, taking and or talking and acting so that uh, the other person feels safe and comfortable expressing themselves and doing things. Respect, such a big one. Listening to the other person non-judgmentally being emotionally affirming and understanding, valuing opinions, trust and support, supporting the other person's goals in life, respecting their right to their own feelings, their own friends, their own activities, and their own opinions, honesty and accountability, accepting responsibility for self, acknowledging past uh, uh, wrongs, Admitting being wrong. <laughs> that's so hard for some people. Admitting being wrong. Communicating openly and truthfully. Responsible parenting. Sharing parental responsibilities. Being a positive, nonviolent role model for the children. Remember, that's verbally and emotionally as well as physically. Shared responsibility. Mutually agreeing on a fair distribution of work making family decisions together, economic partnership, making money decisions together, making sure both partners benefit from financial arrangements. If you're going to label one of these wheels the love wheel, which one would it be? It'd be the second one, wouldn't it? The one that has equality at the center, not that other one. And yet there's so many people that live out of that other wheel that uh, will say that they really love their spouse. And they will come to me practicing these things because they just didn't know any better. They didn't know it was wrong. And so uh, that's why I'm even sharing this with you today is because there are so many that are caught up in this stuff. And uh, somebody said one time it wasn't a fish that discovered water. You know, you stop and think about it, fish just live in water. If you were, if you were brought up in an abusive situation, uh, that's normal to you and you would not be aware of it. And yet the Lord calls us out of the darkness and into light. And He wants that light to shine brightly in your closest personal relationships. And so uh, Paul talks to us uh, here. Well, before we get to that, though, he talks about uh, acting in obedience. And uh, it uh, just really amazed me whenever I was looking uh, at the story of the Good Samaritan uh, in Luke. I looked this up again. Let's see, the 10th chapter of Luke. Uh, there's some very important things here that Jesus says. I want to read this to you. It says, and a lawyer stood up and put himself and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice he asked him, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read? And you know, we went over, the, we went over this last week and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Now then, uh, I didn't notice until this morning that whenever Jesus says, do this and you will live, he is quoting from Leviticus around the 18th chapter where uh, Moses is laying out all the commands and laws for a living life to the children of Israel before they're going to go into the promised land. And in the middle of that, he says, you're not going to be living. You're not supposed to live like those that I have brought you out from. You're supposed to be a different kind of people. You're supposed to be living a different kind of life. And this is the kind of life you're supposed to be living. And then he goes through all different aspects of conduct with them. And then again, he says, I am the Lord, your God, do this and you will live. So when Jesus says these words, he is identifying himself as God Almighty. He is saying, I am God. And I'm telling you, this is the way it is. Well, and he's telling this to a scribe, one who will recognize those words, one who knew the Scripture. And it just underscores the fact where Jesus said that He didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The law's still there; it's still supposed to be considered because it does show God's heart, and it he shows that God's people are supposed to be different from the world that He has saved them from. And so He, uh, uh, and, and let's say, well, I'm going to go ahead and show you in Galatians. Uh, the fifth chapter something important about differences in conduct our conduct is supposed to be different and so in the fifth chapter of galatians uh, let's see if i can find it here but i say walk by the spirit walk by the spirit paul says you're not going to walk by the spirit if he's not with you okay Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, and in some translations this reads human nature, and uh, this is just it. We are prone to live out of our human nature instead of out of the will of God left to our own devices. And our human nature when it comes to relationships is going to take us the wrong way a lot of times. We don't live out of just our emotions, out of our feelings. We live out of what we know that God wants of us. For the flesh, our human nature, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please." If Jesus is your Lord, you can't just do whatever you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is kind of like look at this wheel again. All right, listen, these are the, the deeds of the flesh, or the works of our human nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And listen to what Paul says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if these things are things that you practice, outbursts of anger, in fact, uh, the idolatry where it says idolatry, that means man-made gods. And you can put a lot in there. And let's face it, churches many times uh, are serving their own gods, not the one true God. So many times I see a church getting ready for a building program. And uh, instead of it being something that's really uh, God's will and something they've sought God and they know, and maybe it's a responsibility for them to do, the preacher, his God is success. And he knows if he gets people Build in a building program that there'll be more people coming to church, people will join together, they won't be fighting as much for, for a while, and uh, and that they will wind up uh, uh, having a, 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 a time whenever they move to the new building where maybe attendance will start to increase. And so his God, many times, is the God of success. While there will be people in the church that don't want to spend the money, Don't want to move. Don't want to do this. Don't want to do that. In my hometown church that I grew up in, my goodness, if anybody could make that church building a God, it would be me. My grandfather built the education wing on that church. And one of the uh, stained glass windows, I guess, I think three of the stained glass windows were given by my family. And if there's anybody that wouldn't want to leave that building, it would be me and my family. And I have watched them fight over moving. I don't know how many times and they haven't moved, but many of them, the building and the tradition and uh, the good feelings and remembering that that's where mom sat and this is where somebody, all of that comes into play. Instead of serving God, remember in that other wheel, who's in charge here? Who's in charge in our church? Is it God Almighty? At the center of any power and control wheel, any, any, any wheel, the one in charge ought to be God. Not me, not you, but the Lord. And, uh, and yet we make gods and we serve those gods So anyway, but that's power and controls the heart many times of what's going on. Now, listen to the other wheel, the other fruit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. How much better do you feel when you hear that list than when you heard the first list? It's just amazing. Now then, back to our main text today. You know, uh, God in this passage gives us a model for what our relationships should be like. It starts off. You know, it says, "Love the Lord your God." You have the great commands. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like to do it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Now then, as far as loving your neighbor and loving God, starts with God. He's the one who's supposed to be in control. And two different times in uh, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul says in in 5.10, he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord we should always be trying to understand what pleases God in our relationships. Not what we want, but what pleases God in our relationships. And then on in the 17th verse, again, he says in a different way, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now then, He goes on, and then he's talking about how the Christian should be living his life. It starts out, we need to be trying to understand what the will of the Lord is. If you love him, you're going to want to understand, and you're going to want to serve. Okay, and how do you find out? You explore. It takes some effort. And you have to read his word. You have to attend a church. You have to do, have Bible studies. You need to do different things to start understanding what the will of God is. What does he want in your relationships? And then he goes on. And in verse 21, and this is another fascinating thing that I've just learned as I was preparing for this morning, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father and to be subject to one another, or in some translations it reads, and submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Submit to one another. Uh, be subject to one another. Consider each other. Remember the equality wheel? It's only whenever you're seeing each other as equals before God that you're going to be able to be subject to one another. Jesus gave an example of what this looks like when on the last night uh, he had was with his disciples he took a bowl of water and a towel and he went around and he washed his disciples feet and he said, you see what I just did? This is my example for you. You call me Lord and you're right. I am. But then he goes on and he says that the least of you is the greatest the greatest is the weak of uh, the leakest uh, the leakest uh, the greatest is the least and uh, the thing is is that uh, we should serve one another we should consider each other and not just be trying to assert our own rights uh, before each other he who's Last will be first, and first will be last. Well, he goes on with being subject to one another. That's what he was getting at. And then I never noticed that in the Greek, this next passage, if you read it in the Greek, it would literally be wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. There's no submit in there. Did you know that? Wives to your husbands. He's referring back to when he was talking to everybody, how everybody's supposed to be interacting with everybody in submitting ourselves one to another, seeing each other as equals, and considering each other. And then he says, Wives to your own husbands. You be subject to your own husband. And then He puts a lot more on the husband than he does the wife. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And he goes on. He says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And we'll get back to those two words in a second. Just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. And then it goes on in the the, the 33rd verses. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, in this last verse, we see something very interesting. What's the husband told to do to his wife? Oh, no. Love her. her. Okay. All right. What's the husband supposed to do to the wife? Love her. Yes. Yes. Men, if you're married, you're supposed to be loving your wives. And, oh, this is going to be hard. Do you remember what he said that uh, the uh, wives should do to their husbands? He said, therefore, let's see to it that she. Y'all remember, the women listen so much more than this. And this makes a point uh anyway uh <laughs> the women were listening the guys were in their little box you know anyway <clears throat> the thing is is that women are told to respect their husbands they're not told to love their husbands anywhere in the passage women or men aren't told to respect their wives they're told to love them which is more important now then why did he use those words that's very important they determined that a woman's deepest need is to share herself deeply with those that are closest to her. And in order to do that, she has to have a safe environment or she's going to get hurt. She has to make herself vulnerable in order to share herself with other people. And yet that's a woman's deepest need and deepest desire is to share herself deeply with those close to her. And so the husband is told to love your wife, nourish her, cherish her, look out for her, treat her just like yourself. See, there's that equality thing. And really the equality thing is all the way through, because if you remember what the golden rule is, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But he lifts up a woman's greatest need and he commands the husband to supply it. A man's greatest need, it turns out, is to feel like he makes a difference in this world, to feel like he counts, that somehow he's making a mark. And where he needs to feel to get that more than anywhere else is at home. So your husband, I've talked to you about this before, w- wives, what your husband needs at home is a cheerleader needs somebody that whenever he comes walking through the door, it's, you the man, Rick. You the man. You the man, Bill. You the man. You know, you the man. Anyway, he needs someone who will lift him up. Someone who lets him know that if he doesn't count in anybody else's eyes, he counts in your eyes. Now then, He did this because he he commands the wives to respect their husbands. That's his deepest need. Now then, he commanded us to supply each other's deepest needs. All the others are going to fall in underneath that. And what we see here, as far as what love is really supposed to look like, it's not getting something from that other person. It's not getting some sort of satisfaction from that other person. It is exploring that person that you care about, and to the best of your ability, finding out what's important to them. What do they need to feel complete and whole in life? And to the best of your ability, supply that to them. If y'all haven't been practicing this, I encourage you to start. And let me tell you, changed people change people. If you start acting in a different way, there may be a while where there's some imbalance there. Because once you start acting differently, they're going to have to start reacting differently. I love those words, nourishing and cherishing. If you nourish something, I'm growing a garden right now and uh, I'm having to nourish these plants I'm having to take care of them. I'm having to, I've I've fed them. I'm watering them. I'm keeping the bugs away from them. You see, that's all a part of nourishing. Uh, How do you nourish someone in a relationship? You help them. You encourage them. You show them affection. And uh, that's something that, well, anyway, and cherish. Whenever you cherish something, or someone, you hold them dear. They're precious to you. Sharon walked in on me in my study the other day, and I had uh, a gun page up on my screen when I was supposed to be working on my sermon. I had to explain to her that that's what I was doing. I was doing sermon research there as I was looking at these different guns. Now, let me explain this to you. I have two guns Two, uh what well, two guns, will you say? Two handguns that I cherish. The first is a nine millimeter uh, Ruger, I believe it is. And this, this I cherish this gun because it shoots so well. It just feels good in my hand. And everybody else that ever shoots it, and I like to take people out and let them play with my toys, and uh, whenever they shoot this pistol, they can remark, you know, that's the one I like right there, you know. Everybody loves this pistol, and I love it. I cherish it. And because I do, I take care of it. Now, there's another reason why I cherish it. You see, I had, I have guns now, but for a while I didn't have any guns because we ran out of money and I needed to fill I needed to feed my family. And so I took what guns that I had and I sold them so I could feed my family. I still miss one of those guns terribly. It was a Remington 1800 12 gauge shotgun. But be that as it may, I fed my family. Well, when I got this nine millimeter for Christmas, I believe it was from my daughter, there's a note and the note said, Daddy, there's so many times that I know you have sacrificed for us and we didn't even tell you thank you. And I know that your guns meant so much to you and you didn't even know that I knew that you did that. So, I'm giving you this. If that gun blew up and was in a million pieces and it still had hands, um, I would keep that in a box because I would still cherish it because of the sentiment that was behind it. The other gun, and this is what I was checking out whenever Sharon walked in, is my uh, Raging Judge Magnum. And uh, that particular gun will fire 410, it's a revolver that will fire 410 shotgun shells, uh, 45, lo, 45 long Colt shells, and 454 Casol. 454 Casol was at one point the most powerful handgun in the world. Uh, above, it was, it's more powerful than 44 Magnum. There's, it's now number four as being the most powerful handgun in the world. And I'm not going to get anything more powerful. I don't think I could shoot it. But uh, because this thing will just turn a small watermelon into pink vapor. Uh, It's just amazing. Fun to play with. And everybody that plays with that toy of mine, they love it. But they like the 9mm better. But I love both of them. Because I like to blow stuff up and uh, shooting this gun just like setting off a bomb every time you shoot it. Flame shoots that far out of the end of it, you know so but I cherish it. I take care of it. Now then, we are told to nourish and cherish each other. What I'm getting at is when you love someone, the most important thing to do is find out what's important to them and serve them by giving it to them. God first, Find out what's important to God. Give it to him. And what he wants you to do is explore those people close to you. Find out what's important to them and give it to them. Don't wait. I have so many people coming in and they'll come in and they will both know exactly what the other person wants for them. And neither one of them is willing to give it first. Because that's their ace in the hole. And I'm not going to give you what you want from me until I get from you what I want from you. And so they come into my study, living in the same house, sitting pretty close to each other. Sometimes they'll sit in different places, you know. Sometimes they'll pull their chairs apart when they come in. There's a wall of ice between them. And they both have it within themselves to make that other person feel whole and complete, and yet because they're not willing to give first, they are in this standoff where they are both miserable and their marriage is just about to fall apart. It's hard to do this in your own power, I know, but the wonderful thing is as you start attempting to do it, the Lord's power and presence will be with you. And as you attempt to do it, he will show up. He will give you the strength. He will give you the wisdom. And this also goes into all other, and with your children, with everybody else, he will help you to have the best possible relationships that you can have. Whenever uh, I'm performing a marriage, many times when those two people are standing in front of me, I'll tell them said, you, you may think that you have found each other, but let me tell you this. Back in the beginning of time, God started a family. He created Adam and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he created Eve and he presented Eve to Adam, and the first family was born. And since then, He's been putting people together. And today you two stand in front of me and he's saying to you, Billy, this is Susie. She is precious to me and I want her to have a good life. There's some things that I can't provide her by myself. Will you help me help her have the best possible life that she could have? Susie, this is Billy. He's a good old boy. And I really like him a lot. And I want to help him have the best possible life that he can have. But there's some things he needs that I cannot on my own supply him. Would you help me help him to have the best possible life he can have? Well, you see, that's what he wants you to do. All the people around you, he presents them to you, husbands, wives, friends, neighbors, everybody. He presents them to you and says, this is a person I care for deeply, and I want you to help them have the best possible life that they can have. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.